0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 26th, the Monday, 2022. Uh, things are changing dramatically, have been on the culture front uh, for 20, 50 years, perhaps. We just did a show with Richard Reeves. Has a new book out. He's a Brookings Institute sociologist, political scientist of boys and men. How uh, everything's been turned on its head. Uh, Boys and men are the new girls and women, Uh, particularly white boys and men. It's an interesting phenomenon. Some people might suggest hardly surprising and not necessarily a bad thing. Others, like Reeves, are rather concerned. One of the things that occurs to me is that even traditional feminism has seemed to have become almost boring. I watched Don't Worry, Darling, the new movie, rather controversial movie over the weekend. It's an intriguing film. I think it's got some rather unkind reviews. But one review that was fairly uh, accurate, I think, talked about its empty feminism. We take much of the feminism uh, of uh, of Don't Worry Darling, I think, for granted, which means that it's not quite as a compelling film as it was. Everything then is changing on the gender front, on the race front, uh, on the sexual identity front. And one person who is quite literally, I guess, on this front is my guest today. Hafiza Augustus uh, Jeter is the author of a really important and, 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 and highly anticipated new book, The Black Period, on personhood, race, and origin. And Hafiza is joining us from Brooklyn today. Hafiza, welcome.
1: Hi, uh, thank you, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here.
0: So about this thing about boys and, and, and men, Hafiza, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Richard Reeves's argument. But is this something that we should concern ourselves with, as if boys and and men are the new, shall we say, blacks and women? Um, I'm not familiar with
1: his Booker's argument, but I don't even I mean, I don't even understand the argument because in every room, men are still in power. They're still I mean, they're legislating women's wombs right now. So I guess I don't really see the evidence for any of that to be true.
0: Interesting. So let, let's talk about the Black period. It's it's a memoir, Hafiza. What yes. are you trying to do in the book? I mean, obviously write about yourself and your memories. I mean, yes, it's, so
1: it's both a memoir and kind of like a cultural analysis. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is show the way that essentially the political situation and like this state influences our day-to-day lives. So often, you know, for the people who are the most, who feel kind of like the hand of the state the most. It's often, you know, women, queer people, uh, black people, indigenous people, people of color. Um, We're the ones who feel the hand of the state in our intimate lives. And so I'm trying to show all the ways that like, you know, to be alive is to be, is essentially experiencing a political condition and the ways that we are united through that.
0: Why is your your life, Hafiza, so so much, at least in your view, a mirror of this political struggle?
1: Well, um, you know, I think so. My father was born in 1945 in Jim Crow Alabama. You know, um, and he he went to legally segregated schools he my um he moved with his with his family to ohio at the tail end of the great migration my mother was a nigerian muslim immigrant and she died two years after 9 11. and you can literally see the history of this country um through both sides of my family through like immigration but also through just the Black American experience, and so I think it really illustrates. Okay, like this is the way policy filters down into an individual life. Just for example, um, you know, my mother died uh, in 2003, and it, and just the the experience of trying to grieve a Muslim woman in a country where was was every time a Muslim person was dead, it was almost it was celebrated. You know, it was. Uh, it's still a very Islamophobic time, but it was so deeply and so blatantly state sanctioned at that time and just so like that the the way i had to experience that grief was very political
0: you wrote an interesting piece uh for salon this year Uh, this uh i think it was last uh uh, independence day this independence day we are less free than the year before we must work together for liberty you you argue it's parade season the the season of celebrating hard-won freedoms. As a queer Nigerian-American woman, the three weeks between mid-June and early July uh, should be a cause of joy, but instead I look at these spectacles and feel cognitive dissonance. Um, Are things getting worse in your mind in America when it comes to discrimination? I
1: mean, I think that... I mean, it's hard to say. it's never been a good time, you know? No,
0: I, I don't think anyone assumes that, especially- Yeah, and I'm so it's just sure. like
1: worse, I think it's just like worse than what and worse for who. Um, and so it's, I think that, that we faced new challenges, um, in responding to like, you know, like we now live in a a surveillance state, which in which the state can surveil us in ways it has never been able to do before. Um, We live in a time where, you know, we're celebrating freedom, but essentially we've all been told that at some point we're going to have to get, you know, COVID, which is, which for some even vaccinated can be life-threatening and now we're also just starting to see you know the 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 effects and threat of long covid which is a mass disabling event. Um yeah, so
0: yeah, it's anything to celebrate Hafiza in I mean of course September I think that like 2022
1: I think that like you know the the thing about my book is that it is despite all the things that you know we're up against, it is a very celebratory book and ends in joy, because I think one of the most amazing things I I kind of experienced and learned over the course of writing this book is just, you know, how many people are doing the work of fighting for justice and fighting for freedom. And there's so much work going in, going on in community. And I think that that is actually one of the most incredible things. And so I think, the course of writing my memoir, even despite looking at the violence, it made me a hardcore optimist because I think our algorithm is designed to to show us the misery and we're not taught, we don't actually see all the ways that people are working in community to try to push against this. And I think that the remarkable thing that I saw in like the research for my book is like, you name a problem and there's somebody who's working on it. And I think that is pretty miraculous.
0: You had an interesting uh, conversation on confronting complicated questions of one's own life when writing memoir. In terms of writing this book, what did you learn about yourself in the process of writing uh, the Black period that you didn't know before writing it?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that writing a memoir does, you have to, it is a very deep and extensive look back at yourself and your own past. And I think one of the things that was one of the things I had to do over and over again is to look like how do I remember things? Is this the way I remember? And what what am I choosing to remember and what are the barriers of memory? And just thinking about how much um, of my, my the grief around my mother's death was, you know, also tangled around that time, that post 9-11 time, also trying to think, okay, what had, you know, grief blocked me out from remembering? Um, and what had essentially the work of, you know, the anti-Blackness of this country stopped me from remembering about my own past? And I think when I looked, when I went, looked back, I really saw just all the inventive ways my parents worked, to give me as like, you know, a young black girl, a story and a history that I could believe in and be proud of despite the ones that I was given to, I was given to by this country. And I think, you know, looking back, I really saw that like despite limited resources that the ingenuity that is in like, you know, in just in the way like black people come together to work in communities actually quite amazing.
0: What do you remember about your mother? She's such an important figure in the in the memoir.
1: Yeah, I think that you know when I was like looking through kind of like her archives and the things that we haven't, you know, my mom died kind of like really before the explosion of like the personal online foot like fingerprint. So they're not there. Really, no traces of her other than you know the physical parts that we have. And you know, I was looking through. Her things, and I found this award that she had gotten from the Black Caucus in Akron, Ohio, for helping uh, African immigrants adjust to the area. And you know, I remember going to some of those caucus meetings with her as a child, pretty much just like waiting for her to finish, but kind of not realizing what she what she was doing while we were waiting for her to finish. She was building community. She was helping. People, you know, adjust to a world that, you know, in very ma- in many ways was hostile to them, you know, as African immigrants coming to a country that's just 30, 30 years outside of the Civil Rights Act. Um, and so I think just see, looking back and seeing how important community and braiding the Nigerian side of my history with the American side of my history was to her.
0: What about as a mother, though, outside politics, as a girl remembering her?
1: Well, I mean, I think that being a mother is inherently political. I mean, it's how it's a very difficult thing to say mother outside of politics, especially now when the right to either be or not be one is very political. And so I think that, you know, everything that there's something political involved in raising a black child. So it's a tricky question to be outside of like the political, because you can see, I can see the way she's trying to write her own story and everything she did, including, you know, my, my mother for, if you looking back, she was, she was kind of, she was ahead of her time in many ways. She baked her own bread. She was, vegan she shopped at a co-op she started every morning with yoga you know the things that you think of you know a very certain type of person doing now you think of it's like that, that type of wellness is like very much often reserved for a certain like you know white white woman of a certain class but thinking of all the ways my mother like knowing just all the ways this country can try to kill you really try to embrace wellness and her and you know, her own health, I think, is something that I remember.
0: And what about the grieving? I mean, how did that affect you as a woman, losing your mother at, when she was so young? Well,
1: I mean, I think I think regardless of who you are, like, losing a mother is kind of like a found, it's foundational because it's your origin story. And I think that, like, for me, I was 19 when she died. And so, you know, I was very young and at that kind of crucial crossing of when, because when you're that young, you're, you're, you're still very much a child in many ways. And it just really at that crucial crossing between like, you know, girlhood and womanhood and essentially all the things that, that you, you see that other people get to experience, you know, you kind of have to figure that out on your own. And so, yeah, I think that it's, there's not a single way in which her death did not affect
0: me. What about in terms of your evolution as, as a poet? Many people will be familiar with your first book, uh, Un-American Poems. Um, when did you start writing poetry and, and, and how did your mother's death affect that?
1: Yeah, I think poetry was definitely like my first art form. I started writing it as a kid. And, you know, when I realized that, oh, there's a thing called an MFA that you can study poetry. Um, I went to do that. I think it was you know, the the very first thing that I found that I was was really, really good at um, was writing. And so like, I stuck with it um, as, and I think that in terms of how my mother's death impacted my writing and my poetry, I think it lays you bare. Um, The cover that you showed of the poetry collection is actually a, um, it's a painting that my father painted of my mother nine months pregnant, my sister because my father is a visual artist and one of the things about the black period is that includes um, about like 66 images from my father like for example here's one um like that image on the cover is in there but like here's one. it has like two color inserts um but yeah I think that in terms of like her death you know poetry is one of those like any writing, any art form is something that you have to be vulnerable to. And I think that like death, whether it is, you know, what is someone like a mother it, and especially like so young and so unexpected, it really does make you tap in to the temporality of everything and to, really, and to really try to figure out like what you're looking at because your guide is gone. And I think that is the work of a writer is to figure out what, what are we looking at here?
0: Most of us are not lucky enough to have an artist as a father, and most of us don't write memoirs. What was it like, not only to have an artist as a as a father, but to have your memoir itself, as you just revealed, um, dignified, if that's the right word, by his artwork?:
1: Yeah, I think that it was it was very fun to put together. and you know, from the moment I started this memoir, there was never a version of it that existed without the artwork. Because, you know, I can remember certain parts of my life by looking at my father's paintings. I can tell you what house we I can look at a painting and tell you what house we lived in when we when he made it. I can tell you you know I can tell you so much about like the time period, the moments by the way his styles changed. And so I think for me it really was it really was an integral part of the story because through my father's art, I learned that that there are different ways to interpret the world that you see. Um, and that, that there's always more than one way to tell a story. And so I think that the great part about kind of like seeing the book in its final is really seeing that in this very wonderful way, the way my me and my father's art are speaking to each other. He also did the uh, the art that's on the cover. Um, but like looking at the way the art kind of intermingled with the text, I'm just like, okay, you know, I really am my father's child. And there's something you know really beautiful in being able to see that.
0: Perhaps um, you might say a few words about your father, um, uh, uh, Hafiza. Not not everyone would be familiar with Tyra and Jita. Mm-hmm. Just explain. You mentioned earlier that he was he was born in Alabama. Tell us a little bit about his his life, his a brief biography of your father.
1: Yeah, so my father was born in Alabama. He moved to Ohio with my grandmother and his two sisters when he was, I think, fifteen. Um, and he lived there for a long time. He went to Ohio University where he got um not just a Undergraduate in painting, but he also got in, uh, his MFA in painting. Um, and I think he was, only the second black person at Ohio University to, you know, to graduate from that art department at the time. And then he met my my mother was there visiting my auntie Myro at the time, who was who was uh, doing her master's I think in education from Nigeria, and they they met. And then they went on two dates. They got married. Um, And then after being married, my father eventually, he moved back to Nigeria with my mother, where they had me, me and my sister, my older sister. And I think they lived there for seven years. I think that that time really became a formative time for my father. Because, you know, looking around and seeing, like, even though you can see the hand of like colonialism everywhere but you're also in a black country which you know is i think which i can imagine just like that momentary relief for my father coming out of uh, coming out of the time he did you know he was and while he was at, at ohio university he got drafted um but luckily because he had a little bit of college he didn't get drafted into like the actual like Vietnam War, like the the fighting, he was sent to Germany to assemble muni- to like be a munition sergeant. And um, after he and my mom got married, they they lived in Nigeria for seven years. They moved to the U.S. because Nigeria was just at that point too dangerous. And he, in, in the U.S., we moved back to Ohio. He taught uh, art at University of Akron for a long time before he moved to South Carolina where he retired from an HBCU in South Carolina um but his entire life he you know he has been a dedicated artist and that's always been like central to to who he is and i think that that's really where i i think where i'm able to to do what i do cuz you know i think a lot of parents if they're kids told them that they wanted to get an MFA in creative writing, they'd be like, but what are you going to do with it? Whereas, like, my father always celebrated it. Um, and so, like, art has always been a central part of my life, I think, because of who he is. And and he's also just, like, supremely talented.
0: Why did you call the book The Black Period"?
1: Yeah, so, um, kind of, like, for two reasons. Like, as a poet, I love double meaning. And so, For on one end, my father loves Goya's black paintings. And whenever Goya's black paint, Francisco Goya's black paintings are kind of terrifying. They show, you know, kind of like the ghoulish heart of man. And he's painted them using mainly blacks. And whenever I saw it, I'm just like, this is terrifying. But my father loves them because his. His whole thing is, do you know how hard it is to paint in blacks? And so, where I saw terror, he saw skill, and that was the first lesson in that, like, what you see dem- depends on who's looking. So, for so it's partly that, and the and the other meaning is that this book really is an exploration of like deep time and what like I, about like what is the length of time in a lifetime, right? And how like what are we responsible for? And thinking of the Black period as its own, kind of the same way we say, like, you know, it's the uh, time of, like, it's the age of Aquarius, the age of innocence, um, thinking about the way time works inside communities of color and the way like our time, like we live with our ancestors um, and history is very much alive. You know, when I think I did the math doing this book that my father was, I think had entered his teenage years was someone who was born into slavery was still alive? You know, and if you really think about that, um, it really makes you question. Just like when we say like the past is the past, you know, but for who and what does that mean? And so I loved how the title, like you know, could represent both the art and you know this this question about you know how long is history.
0: We've done a number of shows recently, uh, Hafizah, on the American dream, particularly from a, a migrant point of view, also from an African-American point of view. Your book touches on it. It's about, in a sense, what uh, your publisher calls the grind of the American dream. What does that dream mean to you? Is it absurd? Is it real? Could it be something that might offer you and others uh, I mean, potential. I
1: think that you know, in order for I think that's a very complicated question, and it's the idea of American dream is always way more complex than people want. So people so often want to face because right now we have to question, you know, what is the meaning of America now, especially or I mean or ever, you know, it was founded in the idea of, the idea that a country could be founded in both freedom and enslavement, you know, and thinking about what America is in this current iteration of it in terms of what's happening with COVID, what's happening with conservative movements and, you know, just like nationalistic movements rising everywhere. I think that in terms of the American dream that it was never intended to be for Black people. So it's high, so it's i so i don't even know how to answer that because it was never intended for it to be accessible for a large portion of people and so i think that the that what else can we dream into is what something that like my memoir and my work is more interested in is this idea that okay you know we that There are there are many different types of worlds that we can create um, and many different ways to
0: dream about freedom. Do you see yourself as a as a symbol, as a reflection on because you're pretty unusual on many fronts? I mean, you know, you can talk broadly about whites or blacks, but no one really fits into any of those categories. what do you think your book can teach others politically, who may not share everything about you, perhaps your sexuality, your history, your relationship with Africa or America?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm a symbol. I think I'm I'm a person who's looking really hard at things. Um, and I think that one of the things that can be learned from, maybe learned through my book, is essentially what I had to learn is that right now it's easy to just mean there's so much going on just between politics, COVID, which is now politics. There's just like so much to look at and everyone, and we're all overwhelmed. And so our first response is just like to look away, but through the course of my, you know, the kind of the, the work of my memoir is to, was to essentially like take all of this like this nonsense and this, these aspects of the world that really impact us. And to be like, what am I looking at? And I think that through the book, just trying to like slowly untangle, like what is it that we're actually looking at is that I actually found that like, it is not, that is not the overwhelming part. That like, the more you understand the way the webs of oppression are connected, the actually, the actual, you get the more relief there is because you think you'll look back at history I, and this is the fight against crt that like um that should not teach history but if you look back at history and understand it like if there's nothing to be scared of that the more history i uncovered the more i understood the better i felt you know despite all the violences that you're looking at but it just makes you understand that like all that we didn't get here mysteriously, you know, that like, this is all by someone's design. And once we understand that, we can, we can act. We, we don't have to be immobilized because we're overwhelmed. And I hope that people will find relief and just be like, okay, it is possible to understand this and see that there is a reason you feel like this. And it is, and that like, that reason is a country.
0: And that reason, of course, is politics. You mentioned CRT, uh, critical r- racial theory. Um, we did a show uh, with um, uh, a cultural writer, uh, uh, Brandy Collins-Dex. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work last week. She has an interesting new book out, Black Skinhead, which calls into question African-Americans uh, unthinking uh, affection for the Democratic Party, loyalty to the Democratic Party—in political terms, Hafiza, what um, what are you advising in this book? What, in conventional political terms, are there fixes through traditional political means through the Democratic Party, for example, or are there? Uh, are, are the real struggles beyond politics or extra political?
1: I mean, I think it's both politics is the arena that we have, but to like one of the arenas we have. But like, I think if I, if my book is advocating anything, it's an abolitionist politics. Um, I don't think that you can reform this system. Um, and so I think the, it's like, how can we Move away from racial capitalism. How can we, how can we move away from a system that essentially, like, prioritizes money to our death? You know, and we are seeing that now. And I think that one of the ways that we see people pushing against that is unions. Like Home Depot has a union. Starbucks has unions. And I think that that like, um, for everywhere, you know, people are oppressed. There are people rising up.
0: So there are. Political solutions for this there is hope for you
1: Sure, I think that there, there is always hope. I think that I think that especially black people are you know we are experts in hope. I think the prison, uh, the prison abolitionist Miriam Kaba says you know hope is a discipline and I think you have to be disciplined to hope because hope is also a map you know it, it like helps you guide guide you to new possibilities and helps you imagine the impossible. Because you know, freedom has freedom for certain people has always been deemed as impossible, and yet here I am. You know,
0: I had a I've had several conversations with the uh, African American uh, historian Carol Anderson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work; quite an influential writer. Um, we talked in one of our conversations about the hope you talk about, and I half jokingly said. It, of the conversation, uh, Carol, she's like you in many ways, a great critic of the American experiment. I said, you're hopeful, you're kind of American. And she laughed and she said, I'm more American than most Americans. Do you think that Hafiza, the one quality of Americanness is is indeed hope, optimism, positivism? Is there something in that sense, American, about your memoir too?
1: Well, I mean, I think that people are hopeful um, in general. I don't think that hope is an American quality. I think that thinking that hope is like American quality is an American quality. Um, but I think that to have a child, you know, to raise a child, to, to just like get up every day, I think that there is, that one has to be hopeful. One has to believe, th- you know, that that's something Nuke and surprising can happen. Um, but I think in terms of like, is, is my book an American memoir? I think, of course, of course, it is. I, was, I was raised in this country. And um, even though I moved here when I was three, like I am a product of this country. And so this this country helped write me and I cannot unwrite that influence out of my life. You know, but I think, you know, in terms of what Carl Anderson is saying, that of course, yeah, I think that one of the, that like the criticism is, that like that black people are deeply American even though we're treated as unpatriotic. Think about Colin Kaepernick, you know, like that the idea to criticize the country and to hold this country like accountable to justice is is what this country was supposedly founded on in terms of just like the like the the writing on the paper, though it's not what happened in practice.
0: And yet, it's not just American traditions you 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 add the the mythology of Atlas. it's perhaps one of the central themes in the memoir. How influenced were you by uh, particularly Greek mythology in the in the writing of the book?
1: Well, I think that you know I'm influenced by because the, the book is about like our origin stories um who gets to write them, where they get to start. And so the book is preoccupied with origin stories. You know, one of the threads that is through there is I went to a, like, all girls, mainly white Catholic school growing up from, like, first through ninth grade. And that was, and the idea, Christianity, it's its own, like, origin story and own myth. And I'm very fascinated with like how we like the the, the ground zero from which we write ourselves and i think atlas is one of those very fascinating myths because atlas permeates so much um and it is a myth that like spreads from cultures and like histories and the fact that this that this myth that we ascribe to whiteness like has its its origins elsewhere you know another proof that like a story is so deeply influenced by who tells it
0: that's good stuff and it's a major literary event came out last week uh the black period on personhood race and origin by Hafiza Augustus Jitam I guess today congratulations thank you so much Uh, uh, you know you're you're in the book business too you're an agent so you know the challenges uh, involved in writing a, a, a book, particularly a first, uh, I mean, it's your second book, but the first book was one of poetry, so congratulations on that. Thank you. What else uh, are you uh, reading? Uh, I'm sure you get to read a lot, uh, both uh, in, as your work as an agent, but also as as just a general reader. What what have you been enjoying recently?
1: Yes, I do read, I read for a living and for a pleasure. Um, I think uh, one of the books that I'm reading right now is this one called No More Police by Maryam Cobb and Andrea Ritchie. Um, It's a case for abolition and it's incredible. Um, I'm also reading The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is incredible. Um, It's Mm. it's just one of the most incredible books. Um, I'm reading Christina Rivera Garza's memoir, Liliana's Invisible Summer, which comes out in February from Hogarth, which is amazing. And I'm also reading Christina Sharp's uh, Ordinary Notes, which is a memoir that comes out um, in April from FSG.